Good morning. All right, I want you to think back for just a minute uh, to when you were a little kid. Again, for some of you, you have to think back a little further than others, but all of us remember when we were kids, right? Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Okay, what was your fantasy? When you were a little kid playing in the backyard, what did you think about, when I grew up, here's what I want to do? Uh, changed at various points in my youth. I remember when I was a little boy, one of the things I wanted to do uh, is I was going to be the second baseman for the Atlanta Braves. I was also going to be their leadoff hitter, okay, which I thought was a, a great job to have. Uh, when I got a little older, I figured out a better job that I could have is I was going to be a secret agent just like James Bond, right? I mean, I've already got the looks for it. I figured it would just work out naturally. Uh, my youngest son, Samuel, is convinced that when he grows up, he's going to be a Jedi Knight, okay, which is a, a great dream. Uh, that's one of the ways you know I'm raising him right, right? Is it's... All right, so what did you want to be when you were a kid? Uh, how many of you wanted to be an astronaut? Any astronauts? Okay, a few of those. Uh, any, any ladies want to be a princess? Any princesses? Just Dave Curtin? Okay, that that's, explains a few things. That's fine. Any of you want to be a movie star? Anyone thought you'd be a star on screen when you were a kid? You watched that? That was your dream? Uh, what about a pro athlete? Any other pro athletes in here? Those of us with the athletic warrior build, any of us have that? That is a dream? Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay, forget about all that. How many of you just wanted to be stinking rich? Okay, right? Yeah, there's a lot more hands go up on that one, right? All right, how many of you dreamed about being a homeless beggar? Anybody? How about a death row inmate? Anyone thought, I'm going to sit on death row? That's what I'm going to do? Anyone dream of being called the scum of the earth? Is that on anyone's radar? No. All right, in first century Corinth, which is what we're looking at this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, common fantasies for young people would be things like being a Roman general. Right, a little boy would play that he was riding around in a chariot uh, with his sword or his spear and he was conquering armies for the glory of the emperor. Right, or maybe you would dream about being a great philosopher. It could be the next Plato or the Aristotle. People would walk all over the world talking about my ideas and my brilliance. Okay, perhaps you dream of being a powerful senator. Someone who gets to boss everyone around and have lavish, fabulous dinner parties with all the right people. And of course, one thing that's exactly the same in the first century as it is in the 21st century uh, is you would fantasize about being fabulously wealthy, right? Okay, here's my thing. I don't need to be the richest guy in the world. I just want to be rich enough that I don't ever have to check the price tag on anything, right? That, that'll work. Nobody dreamed of being a slave. Nobody said, when I grow up, I want to be a beggar, right? No one said, when I grow up, I want to be homeless, Okay, they all knew of people who begged or who were homeless, and those were not people to be envied. They were people to be pitied, right? Okay, I tell you all of that because in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul will use this image. He'll talk about who is it that we admire? Who is it that we look up to and dream about being? Uh, and he does this in order to make a very important spiritual point. Uh, but before we get to our text, however, I want to talk about a couple of problems we have with this chapter. Uh, the first problem that exists in 1 Corinthians 4 is it's a very long chapter of the Bible. Paul says lots of things. Uh, Paul tends to be quite wordy. Uh, Paul's the kind of guy, if you gave him a 10-page paper to write, he would write a 15-page paper, right? That's, that's Paul. So we're not going to take the time to read all of 1 Corinthians 4 this morning. 
but I would encourage you to read it on your own later because Paul does say lots of important things we won't get a chance to talk about. Uh, the second thing that's problematic about 1 Corinthians 4 is in this text, Paul uses lots of sarcasm and snark. Okay, Paul has a very sophisticated sense of humor, like I like to think I have a sophisticated sense of humor. Um, and so I think it's okay that I'm sarcastic and snarky a lot because Paul was sarcastic and snarky. Right? Of course, the problem that I run into when I use a lot of sarcasm and snark is people don't always know when I'm kidding and when I'm being serious. Right? That's gotten me in trouble multiple times in my life. That's a regular occurrence. Okay. Part of the problem, though, is we read 1 Corinthians 4 is sometimes we have a hard time determining when is Paul being sarcastic and when is Paul being serious. And we can get some squirrely interpretations if we don't recognize where Paul is using sarcasm in order to make a point. Right? We tend to read the text as being very straight when people in the first century would have read it and known exactly when he was being sarcastic. Okay? So we'll have to watch for that as we read our text this morning. All right, but let's back up a little bit before we get to chapter 4. Uh, we've been in this book for several weeks now. And the first four chapters all deal with the same problem. It's a problem of disunity. Okay, Paul is writing to this church primarily because they're not a healthy church. They have lots of problems. Their biggest problem being they can't get along with each other. Some of them are saying, well, I follow this apostle. And some, well, I follow this other leader over here. And they can't get on the same page. And so Paul says this is going to divide this church itself. This is a threat to the gospel. You cannot carry out your mission as a church when you're so divided. So we've got to fix that. Okay, so Paul offers them in these first several chapters several solutions to their problem of disunity. Okay, in other words, how do you fix a divided and unhealthy church? Right, and the first thing he says is you have to focus on the cross. Because if I'm really focused on the cross of Jesus Christ, if I keep that story central, okay, then everything else is going to work itself out, right? You and I can disagree with the color of the carpet all day long, but if we agree about the cross of Jesus, we can be brothers, right? Okay, number two, he says we have to develop the mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where you and I are on a journey as disciples of Jesus to become more like Jesus, Right? And if we're doing that, if we're growing in our maturity, if we're having the Holy Spirit dwell in us, if we're truly focused on our prayer lives and letting God work through us, okay, we'll continue to grow and we'll have unity with each other. Right? Number three, and this is what we talked about last week, okay, we need to make sure that we are building on the right foundation. Right? Perhaps even more importantly than, than us doing the building, who's doing the real building in the kingdom of God? Is it us? Is this church growing because we're so awesome or because God is so awesome, right? And if we keep that in mind, uh, that makes a big difference in how we approach church, right? We recognize I'm not the foundation, Jesus is the foundation. Okay, there's work for me to do, but who's actually doing the heavy lifting in all of this? It's not me, it's God Almighty, right? Start with God and then we go to us. All right, now in chapter 4, uh, Paul continues that train of thought and he gives us the last of his solutions for an unhealthy church. And what we're going to talk about this week, he says we got to kill our pride. You really want to have a healthy church? You really want to have a church that's united in its mission to win the world for Jesus Christ? We really want to be a kingdom people? We have to kill our pride. Okay, put more positively, uh, we need humility. Right? 
Most disunity in the church isn't really about the issues that we fight about. Uh, it's about the personality behind the issues that we fight about. I talked a couple weeks ago about the church that I was born into up in Maryville, Tennessee. Um, 35 years ago, the big issue that they were dividing over was which translation of the Bible do you use? Right? You had some King James Version only people, and then you had some NIV people because that was the new thing back then, and there was some some arguments about which kind of version of the Bible can we read out of. Okay, but I was talking to my dad about that, and he says really more than which version of the Bible we read out of, the argument was over the personalities who'd camped on either side of it, right? Wasn't about the issue. The issue's not usually the issue. The real issue is the people involved in the issue, okay? And what causes us to have those issues is none other than our own pride. Fair enough? If we can learn how to be humble, uh, then we can even learn how to disagree about stuff like that and still be able to come together as the unified body of Jesus Christ. Fair enough? All right. So how do we do this? How do we develop humility? How do we understand that behind pretty much every sin we commit, there's an element of pride? How do we peel that back and start to develop humility? Uh, Paul gives us several things to work on here in chapter 4. If you're taking notes, these are the things you can write down on the blanks I provided for on the front of your bulletin. Okay, number one, Paul says we need to follow the example of Jesus and the apostles. Okay, if we're truly going to develop humility, we have to follow the example of our spiritual leaders, of Jesus and the apostles. Notice what he says starting in verse 9. He says, For it seems to me, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. Okay, hint the sarcasm on that, right? He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. All right, the way it worked in the Roman world as whenever the Roman armies, which were the mightiest armies on earth by far, when they would go out and conquer, they would always come back to town in a big military parade in order to celebrate how we've conquered the enemy. Okay, and what they would do is over in all the major cities in the Roman world, they would set up these big triumph arches. Okay, there's a bunch of these all over Europe and parts of Asia, right, where they're set at the city center. Okay, whereas the parade was coming into town, they would pass underneath one of these big triumph arches, and on the arch they would inscribe all the details of their great, wonderful military victory. Okay? And the way that the parade would work coming back into town celebrating the victory is at the very beginning of the parade you had the Roman general. Okay, usually he would either be in a huge chariot pulled by white horses, or he would be on a stallion himself um, at the head of the parade with his sword held high, and he would be the one that all the little boys would look to and say, when I grow up, I want to be like that. And I know it's a little bit sexist, but it's true. Uh, but all the girls would sit there and look and say, I want to be married to that guy. Okay? That was the dream. Right? Behind the Roman general would come all of his top commanders. 
They would be on their horses. They would be resplendent in all of their regalia. They would have all the pomp going with them with the flags and the eagles and all the things symbolizing the might of Rome. After the commanders would come all the common Roman soldiers. They would be marching in file with their weapons and their shields and all of their armor. They would put on quite a display marching through this arch. Right Behind the common soldiers would be the leaders that were captured of the foreign army. Okay, and they would come next in chains. Behind them would come all of the soldiers from the foreign army that had also been captured. And they would come in chains. Okay, and most of them would go to be slaves for Rome. Right, they would be sold in markets to whoever could buy them. Um, and several of them would end up doing the gladiator thing. Right? That's how we get our gladiators in the ancient world. They're mostly from conquered peoples. Okay, and so a few of them would get to go be like Russell Crowe in the movie, right? where they go fight gladiator style. Most of those are soldiers from conquered armies. Right, at the very end of the parade would come whoever was left that was captured who wasn't even worth selling as a slave. Okay, slaves are valuable in their world. Okay, below that are people who aren't even good enough to have that job. Okay, and those people, one of two things would happen to them. Either they would use them as food for the animals in the, the arenas. Right? You've got to feed the lions and tigers and bears. Or you would just execute them as soon as you got them through and do away with them. Okay? Whatever it is, you know, these people are so invaluable, they're not even good enough for slave labor. All they're good for is to kill. So catch what Paul says about what it means to be an apostle here in 1 Corinthians 4. Okay, the Corinthians are trying to exalt Apollos or Peter or Paul over each other and says, well, we're following this apostle or this church leader or this person. And Paul says, you've got it all messed up in your mind. You don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. You don't know what leadership in the kingdom of God looks like. Leadership in the kingdom of God does not look like the general who gets to go under the arch first. Leadership in the kingdom of God looks like the one at the end of the parade who is condemned to die. We follow a crucified Messiah. So if you're strutting around like you're God's gift to the church, okay, or if you think that the Christian life is about making you happy and healthy, okay, or if you think it's about climbing the ranks in church, then you don't understand what we're actually doing here in the kingdom of God. Jesus promises us that it is only by losing our life that we will really find it. Have we explored what it means to lay down our lives for the kingdom of God? If we're following the example of Jesus, if we're following the example of Paul, it leads to nothing but humility because we recognize where we really are. We don't exist for the church to serve us. We exist to serve the church, right? If we get there, if we can have that kind of humility, uh, then and only then can we have a really healthy church. That all work? All right, number two. Paul also says we need to think about ourselves as servants uh, taking care of God's stuff. All right? Uh, notice the first verse of this text, verse 1. Oh, by the way. He says, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Okay, we are servants taking care of stuff that God has given to us. A very famous story is told from during the Revolutionary War. 
there was a corporal who was barking orders at all of the common soldiers as they're trying to erect this defensive barrier in the field. Um, and they're not getting it right, and they can't get it all done. And so the corporal gets madder and madder and yells more and more at his troops. Okay, well, just then a guy in plain clothes drive, or drives, yeah, revolutionary, he rides by on his horse, okay, and he asks the guy, he says, well, what's going on here? And the corporal says, well, these guys can't get this done. And he says, well, why don't you help them? He goes, well, sir, I am a corporal. And the guy says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And then he gets off his horse and helps them erect the barrier, and they finally get it finished, and the corporal stands and supervises the whole thing. After it's all said and done, the guy in plain clothes goes back to him and says, next time you don't have enough troops to do a job, you need to come and talk to me, and as your commander-in-chief, I'll get the troops to you. Okay? All too late, the corporal recognized that this guy was none other than George Washington. Right? Oops, that's how you, how you say that. Okay, I don't know if that story actually happened or not, but it was on the internet, so I think it must be true. Okay. Actually, a former Secretary of State told that story from a, a lectern, so it must be true. It is the kind of thing Washington would have done, though, because Washington knew that his army wasn't really his army. His army was entrusted to him by the Congress of the United States in order to accomplish the United States mission that was before it, Right? He had that army that he was to serve in order to accomplish something much greater than himself. He was entrusted with it to do with it what it was designed to do, right? You see where I'm going with this. We have been given the church. We have been given the fellowship of God's people, but it's not ours, right? We've been given it by God. It is his, and our job is to use it to do the mission that God created it to do, right? And if we remember that it's not ours, if we remember that it's really God's, then it's a whole lot harder for me to have a lot of pride in it, right? This goes into what we talked about last week. God's the one building it. God's the one who died for it. It's God's church, not my church. So how in the world am I going to take pride in what I'm doing in it? It's about God. You know, how much of my stuff is really mine? You know, maybe you're super talented. Uh, Maybe you've been given lots of authority over other people. Maybe you've been well-blessed financially. But we all have to remember we are not in charge. We are servants who are taking care of the things that God has given to us. Okay, we have a Lord, and our job is to follow Him uh, and point other people to Him. One of the, the, the worst words um, in church is the word mine, right? When I start thinking, oh, this is mine, uh, that's when we have problems. Fair enough? All right. Number three. Okay, and this goes right along with number two, uh, but we need to remember where we got our stuff. Okay? We need to remember how it came to us. Notice verse six. He says, now, brothers and sisters... I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Okay, again, This is just what we were talking about in the last point. But I want you to imagine for a minute that I came up to you and started bragging about how I have brown eyes. Did you know that I have brown eyes? You should be impressed that I have brown eyes. Okay? I have brown eyes. 
All right, now why is that ridiculous? Okay, because how many of you have brown eyes? Right, it's extremely common. We are more in common than those blue-eyed people, right? Those other people, okay? Also, what did I do to get my brown eyes? Nothing. I inherited them. They were given to me before I knew what eyes were. Okay, so how absurd would it be for me to brag about something that I had no control over and that's extremely common in the world? Okay, and yet what do I do with other things in my life that God has given to me? Ooh, look what I did. Ooh, look what I've done for myself. Ooh, look what I've accomplished. Okay? And it's absurd. It's just as absurd as if I was bragging about my color of eyes, right? I had no control over it. God gave me every single thing that I have. Okay? Do you have salvation because you were so awesome or because it was a gift freely given to you by a loving Savior? Okay, do you have talents and abilities because you were so smart and wonderful or because God gave them to you? Okay, name one good thing you have in your life that isn't a blessing from God. Okay, if I can't brag about all the stuff that I have done in my life and all the stuff that's mine, uh, then I really can't brag at all. Right? And if I get that attitude right, then I can start to develop humility. Okay? All right, number four. We need to understand how far we still have to go. All right, now, here's verse eight. Uh, and notice, this is one of the places that Paul is using sarcasm and snark, um, and this is hilarious, all right? He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. The problem in Corinth is they thought they had arrived, right? Just like we talked about in the communion talk this morning, right? Greg talked about how there was a time in American history where we thought we've already discovered everything, okay? And we didn't realize how much further we still had to go. So the problem in Corinth was they thought, oh, we've already learned everything about Jesus we need to know. We're already living the Christ life. Okay, Paul says, you don't know how much further you still have to go in becoming like Jesus, Okay, the illustration I had written down, which wasn't as good as Greg's actually, but I'll tell it anyway because it's in my notes. Um, but imagine to me that my five-year-old son who's in kindergarten comes up to me and he says, Dad, in school we've been reading and I've read all the books. And I said to him, oh, that's great. You read all the books in your classroom. No, Dad, I read all the books. Okay? I would pat him on the head and I would laugh and I'd say, well, maybe there's one or two more that you'll get a hold of down the line, right? Okay? It would be absurd for him to think that he'd read all the books because from my vantage point, I know how much more there still is to learn and to read and to grow into. Right? If we ever as the church start thinking, we have restored New Testament Christianity and it is done. If we ever think that's where we are, um, I think Paul has some words for us. We've still got some growing to do as a people of God seeking out to follow the way of Jesus. Fair enough? All right, number next, and finally, we need to let our actions speak louder than our words. We need to let our actions speak louder than our words. Notice verse 18. He says, some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Um, I think all of us understand uh, how words can be cheap 
but action is something that's real. A lot of us can talk a good game, right? But what does it look like for us to actually live out the way of Jesus? You know, when I went home the other day, my five-year-old came up to me and, you know, we are new to this kindergarten thing with him and the first week didn't go very good. He was really scared. Uh, but then now he's gotten into the swing of things and now he's very excited to go to kindergarten every day. Uh, so I came home one day this last week and he comes up and he goes, Dad, nothing bad happened at school today. Okay, now do I just take his word for it or do I go get in his folder and look at what the teacher actually had to say about it, right? It's one thing for him to tell me he had a good day. It's another thing, for, you know, it's the trust but verify thing, right? You know, with five-year-olds, you always verify, right? They say a lot of things, okay, but it's in the actions that they can actually back it up. Okay, so what's more impressive? Uh, if I talk a lot about helping the poor or if I actually go work at the co-op and go feed the homeless when we go down to Atlanta? Okay, what's more meaningful uh, if I tell you, you know what, we have a really friendly church here. Or if after church you actually experience us being a really friendly church. Every church says they're friendly. Every church says they care for the poor. Every church says they're trying to do X, Y, and Z. Right? But what matters? Is it what we say or is it what we actually then follow up and do? Okay, and we could obviously go on and on. We all know the difference between talk and If we're really humble, uh, we won't need to talk about all the things we're doing that we're doing. We will do all of the things that we're doing. All right, so what does it look like for us to humbly serve our God? What does it look like for us to put Jesus first in what we do, to have a healthy, unified church, to be humble with each other, to love each other more than we love ourselves, to truly follow the example of Jesus and put you in front of me? Right, what does it look like to be Jesus? We'll continue in this letter in the next few weeks as Paul then turns and tells us some positive things to do as well. Uh, but at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. This is the time in our service where we as the church want to be here for you. Um, and before we sing that song, though, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. If you have a need, come now while we stand and while we sing.